Well, this morning we're going to be reading from God's Word in Psalm chapter 15, which is on page 397 of the front section of the Bible under the chair in front of you. You know, one of the joys that I have as being a pastor here at Faith is having the opportunity to work closely with the youth of our campus. So the teenagers in the church are just fun to be around. I mean, it's surprising how much energy difference there is between a 28-year-old and a 12-year-old. Um, that still marvels me every time we play dodgeball or something like that or um, just hit each other with lightsabers. Whatever it is going on, it is amazing the energy difference. But it's also fun to be around them because of the fellowship and because there's kind of a fresh relationship with the Lord that they have. They're so young and so many of them love God's Word. They love the Lord. And it's at such a young age that it is a privilege to be around them. And recently in the past few months, one of the high school students asked me to meet with him because he wanted to ask me a variety of questions about the Bible. Um, and for, he wanted to do it for a school project. And I thought to myself, well, this is what ministry is all about. There is a high school student that wants to meet with me to talk about the Bible for one of his school projects. And I said, absolutely, I will do that in a heartbeat. So I met with this young man and I gladly answered all the questions that he had. And all the questions that were coming to me, well, at least most of them I saw coming in the sense that most of them were about the flood, most of them were about the creation account, and things like that. And it's not surprising that a teenager would ask these things because if it's the first time studying the Bible, you don't have to be very far into the Bible to get to those supernatural events and have a lot of questions about them. If it's your first time going through on your own. So I answered those questions, and after I was done talking with him for probably 30 minutes, he closed his little notebook of questions and asked me, and he said, would you be able to answer one more question? I said, yeah, absolutely. And I'm sitting there thinking, what is going through his head? What is he going to ask? And I came up with some ideas, probably in my mind, of what he was going to ask next. And what he said surprised me, not because it should have, but because it was such a clear uh, question. And he asked, what can I do to grow in godliness so that by the time I'm 18, I'm ready to be a godly adult in this world? And I'm pretty sure I sat there for a second not knowing what to say, not because I didn't know what to say, but because I was shocked that he asked an answer or asked a question that was that clear and was that significant. I wasn't expecting one of our high schoolers, now maybe that's my fault, I'm not expecting one of the high schoolers to ask a question like that, but it was one of the best questions he could have asked because it was also one of the most obvious not obvious in the sense of that's what everyone is thinking. Surely not every teenager is thinking that. But it was obvious in the sense of that it was one of the most pressing questions that anyone could ask at that, that's that age. How can I become spiritually mature? That's a pressing question for anyone's age. And there are many questions like this in the Bible, aren't there? Questions like, what does it look like for me to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord? What does it mean to give God glory? What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? As you study the Scripture, lots of these questions come up, and many of them are pressing and are very significant and pertinent to the Christian life. And here in Psalm 15, we find one of those pressing questions by, Dave, by King David. And his question is rather simple. Who can be or who can dwell in the presence of God? Well, follow along with me as I read this psalm. It is rather short but it is very straightforward. The Psalm of David, it says, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? 
He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Now, sometimes when we read a psalm like this, it's easy to not notice the structure of the passage. But this psalm has a very clear structure to it. So in verse 1, it's the question that drives the entire psalm. Everything is coming out of who may dwell in the presence of God or who may abide in his holy tent. Now, there's obviously an Old Testament context to this question in the sense that God was physically and gloriously manifest or present in the tabernacle and later in the temple to a degree that he is not present with us on Sunday morning. Meaning when we go to worship on Sunday, we don't go before a room to worship him knowing that he is behind a curtain or he is behind a veil physically there. Now that's not the case for us today, but we definitely all want to be in his physical presence someday and desire to be with him forever. So that's where verse 1 is. But verse 2 is simply put as the answer to the question. Verse 1 is the question. Verse 2 is the answer. And the answer is that a person who can dwell with God is a person of integrity. Someone who outwardly works righteousness and inwardly is a truthful person. A good way of thinking about integrity is by thinking of an individual who is consistent both in their righteousness outside of themselves and inside of themselves. It's the idea of a person being complete or whole in the sense that the entirety of the individual is righteous and desires to do what pleases God. So the answer to the question of who can dwell with God is a person who's righteous or a person who is blameless is another way to phrase it. Now, verses 3 through the beginning of verse 5 describe what it looks like for someone to be a person of integrity, meaning there are eight different lines, and each of these lines is a description of verse 2. These descriptions are obviously not exhaustive in the sense of we could sit here and come up all day with examples of what a godly person should look like or examples of what integrity should look like. But what is important to understand is that these descriptions are descriptions. They're not commands. Now, this isn't the only place where these things are discussed. There are places in Scripture where these things are commanded, but it's important to see that these are descriptions because that is often how the Psalms communicate, meaning this is a time of reflection. It's a time of considering, am I this kind of person? Does my life line up with what is stated by King David here? These descriptions and definitions cause us to ponder and consider whether we are this kind of person person, and to think about what does it look like for me to be growing in this area. It's obviously also not a list of things to do to be saved. We know that, that that salvation is by grace alone through faith. And in the new covenant, we know that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the old covenant, they knew that it was still not by works, but it was by faith. So it's clearly not a way to be saved. And at the end of all these descriptions, at the end of all these definitions, at the end of verse 5, it concludes the psalm with a blessing for those who live lives that correspond to what has been stated in this 
passage. So this is the structure of the psalm. The first verse is a question. The second verse is the answer. Verses 3 through 5 are an explanation. And the last point is a promise for those who are this kind of person. So as we look at this psalm this morning, let's look at a picture of God's servant for 2024. And as we do that, we'll look at four truths for the servant of God pursuing integrity in this coming year. And the first thing we see in this passage is that our God is a God of integrity. Baked into the question is the character of God. It says, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? If integrity is when your actions and your attitudes line up in a way that is righteous, it is clear that God is the person of the highest integrity. God is not a God that is fragmented, that he's going one way this way and then he's going another way this way with the other part of his life. No. He's one that desires, has heart attitudes, and does everything that is in line with itself. Meaning he's not different parts that are all going in different directions. And this is because he is characterized by holiness. Holiness is a concept that can be thought of in multiple ways throughout the Bible. And the first way we can understand holiness is that it's the idea of something being set apart for a special purpose. It's something that is a cut above the rest. So God is a cut above everything else. And you see this concept play out as a simple example at Easter all the time. Because if you show up to Easter Sunday, you will see many families. And if you see the families that come in with four or five kids, what are they all wearing? They're all wearing the same thing, meaning you have little girls that are four or five years old and they are wearing the same dress that mom is wearing. And you have little boys that come in and they're wearing the same shirt and the same cute little tie that dad is wearing. And then once Easter is over, they all go either home or they go to grandma and grandpa's house and they eat ham, they do an Easter egg hunt and everything like that. But as soon as the meal is over, kids often have one question, especially around springtime because they've been trapped inside all winter, and they ask, can I go outside and play? And the answer that I have at least typically heard is, yes, you can go outside and play as long as what? You don't get your church clothes dirty. Now, why should you not get your church clothes dirty? It's because they are a cut above the rest. Now, the eight-year-old doesn't quite understand that because they're not the one that purchased the church clothes. Um, However, we understand that the church clothes are above the other clothes that they have. There are jeans. There are tennis shoes that they could wear out and get muddy. This is similar to even on Christmas, Thanksgiving. What kind of dishes do people often eat on at Thanksgiving and Christmas? Fine china. What do you not do with fine china? You don't microwave leftovers with fine china. Because fine china is not made for that. It's made for guests. It's made for family. Because it is expensive and it is a cut above the rest. So in a similar way, God is holy in the sense that he is a cut above everyone else. He is transcendent and he is greater than us in every way. Now within the idea of God being holy or separate from us is the idea that he's morally separate righteously separate, meaning his morals are different than ours. His ethics are greater than ours. He is always pure. We even sang about this just a few minutes ago. What do the angels say? That he is holy, holy, holy. God is the only one that is holy, holy, holy because he's the only one that is a cut above everything else, and that includes his righteousness. 
all of God is pure. That means his thoughts, his heart, his character, and because of that, everything that comes out of him is pure. And because he is pure and holy, he requires his people to be the same. That is why this entire psalm is here. If God were not holy, the psalm would not be a psalm because it would not be a question. The question of how can I dwell with God is a question because I know that God is holy. David knows that God is holy. We can see this in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19. This is one of the first and most explicit statements regarding the holiness of God. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and saying, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. It's clear that only those who are holy will be able to dwell in the presence of a holy God. And in this first psalm, in the first line of the psalm, the term abide is a word that is the same for sojourning or staying somewhere for only a temporary time. But in the second line of this passage, the word dwell is used, which is the idea of staying or settling down or standing. It's the idea of being with God for a long time, or in this case, for eternity. God requires that all who dwell with him or stay with him to be people who are holy and people of integrity. Now, looking on to verse 2, we can see that integrity is defined by someone who does things outwardly that are righteous and inwardly that are truthful. This is the same as it should be with God, as our integrity is a mark of the whole person. It says that he who walks with integrity, and then it defines that integrity. So the two following phrases are the person works righteousness and the person speaks truth in his heart. So they are outwardly righteous, but inwardly they are of the same kind of person. We've already talked about this, but it's important to really flesh this out. We can see this in James as well. James says about our works, he says, but prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. The actions that come with integrity are just the surface level. Everyone knows someone who you thought was a person of integrity because of their actions, but later showed themselves to be otherwise because their actions either changed or their heart was revealed. Their motive was revealed behind something. And that is because integrity has to do with the works, but when you really boil integrity down, it has to do with the heart. When we think about, when we think about the heart, we should think about the heart as an engine in a car, meaning the heart is what drives a person. It's what's on the inside. It's referring to what the human eye cannot see, and it's referring to the immaterial part of a person or the soul. So when someone doesn't have integrity, their actions often say one thing, and if you could read their heart, it would say something else. Now, there's a common phrase when it comes to integrity that everyone likes to quote, and it goes something like this. Let's see if you can finish it. Integrity is doing what is right even when no one is watching. And there's a whole lot of truth to that, isn't there? When someone is alone and their actions drastically change, that says a lot about their heart. You know, but there's another definition about integrity, and I want to see if you can finish this one. Integrity is doing what is right even when everyone is watching. That kind of shows a different angle of integrity, doesn't it? We can see that play out 
in Matthew 23. Because Matthew 23 is an example of some people that might show integrity on the outside, but when you get down to their heart, Christ shows us that they're really hypocrites and they're deceiving everyone around them. Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but on the inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The Pharisees might have looked great on the outside, but God revealed that they were not men of integrity. They were men of hypocrisy and men defined by deception. And where do we see their deception and their hypocrisy the most? In what area of their life? Well, if you follow the Gospels closely, it becomes very evident. We see it in how they interact with other people. They said they were worshiping God with a pure heart, but by the way they treated those around them, they proved that they were not blameless after all. And that's exactly where Psalm 15 takes, takes us in its logic. Meaning the third section of Psalm 15 discusses how our relationships will display our level of integrity. So I'm going to read these eight different descriptions of a person of integrity and see how each one of them is associated with relationships. So it says, he does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. Now, if we look at the beginning of this, verse 3 has a lot to say about how we use our mouths. And look at that closely. These three lines in verse 3, it says, this kind of person is not given to slandering other people. So to slander simply means to spread lies about someone. Gossip is going around sharing information with other people about someone else's problem. And these people you're sharing it with are neither a part of the problem or a part of the solution. And by sharing these things, you are simply destroying someone or you're tearing someone down. Now, that is sinful enough, but slander is almost a whole other level because not only are you sharing what you ought not to share with other people, but it's also a lie, meaning it's not even true. Lies are being spread to others, and the next line explains that a bit, it explains it a bit and says that that is even doing evil to one's neighbor. The following even says that this sort of person does not even take up a reproach against their friend. Now, reproach means to use language in a way that is against someone. So, scorning someone, scoffing against someone, tearing them down with your tongue or disgracing them. This is not what the person of integrity does. However, the New Testament actually gives us, gives us a contrast to this. This psalm does not necessarily give us this, but the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4.29 says what it should look like to use your mouth. It says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, 
according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. That is what the blameless person does with their mouth. They build rather than destroy. They view their current circumstances they're in, and they consider what the need is of need of the moment is, and then they use the mouth that God has given them to speak words of grace, not destruction. They want to speak life into someone else's life. They don't want to speak death. They choose to use their words to build others up and to give them grace. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look back on 2023, I see a whole lot of people giving grace with their speech in this church. It's not hard to find stories about pastors who want to pull out their hair because their inboxes are filled with people gossiping, slandering, or complaining about something in the church. Well, by the grace of God, that is not the pastor's problem at this church. Now, when I jokingly say the pastor's problem at this church, it's not really a problem, but our problem is what are we going to do with all the thank you letters that people write us? And it's not because we're great, but it's because the people in this church are people of integrity and want to use their speech, they want to use the mouth that God has given them to give rather than destroy. I can think of just stacks of thankful thank you cards that I have gotten, and I'm always thinking, what am I going to do with these? Because I want to keep them. I don't want to get rid of them. I don't want to throw these in the trash. These are edifying words that someone has written to me personally. So I find a place to keep them so that later I can go back to them. I can be encouraged. And first of all, I do want to say thank you to the congregation and for the encouragement, encouragement that you give, but also praise the Lord that God has filled this church with people that are easy to shepherd and people that love to give with their speech. And we think about people. This psalm also kind of takes us to what kind of people should we be around and what kind of people should we value. Verse 4 can be tricky, but it's helpful to understand the first two lines of this verse in contrast to one another. Meaning, it says, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised. So it says, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. The tricky part of this is the word reprobate. We don't use the word reprobate very much in our day. We really just use it when we're discussing the Bible or we're discussing theology, and we could really follow this all throughout the Scripture and go on many rabbit trails, but this is actually pretty straightforward in this context, what it's meaning. The reprobate is one who is against God. It's someone that is opposed to God's ways and even opposed to the character of God. The person is obviously not someone of integrity. The contrast here is that the person of integrity despises those who despise God, but they honor those who fear God. And when it says to despise those who fear, who, who despise those who despise God, it doesn't mean they hate the reprobate or refuse to do good to them. Not at all. We are called to love our enemy. But what this does mean is that a person of integrity holds highly the character of those who fear God and how they choose to live their life, and they do not view a person who despises God in the same way. They don't uphold that person. They don't want to be like that person who hates God, but they most definitely want to honor and imitate those who follow our Lord. As we close 2023, this can be a helpful topic to reflect on because this is the time of year when the world, whether it be on magazines or on the internet, is coming up with the person of the year, the person of 2023. Now, before we get into um, all the shenanigans that goes on with that, 
Um, it is helpful for us to think in, the, in that way in the sense of who are the people in my life or in my church that I can imitate because they are people that are worthy to be followed. Obviously, the most important person to follow is Jesus Christ. He's the one we worship. He's the one who's our greatest example. But even Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So as you enter into 2024, I would encourage you to think about a godly person in this church who you can imitate. If you're young, what I would encourage you to do is to take your wallet out. You probably don't have cash anymore because I don't, teenagers and college students don't know what cash looks like, but you have a plastic card and you can buy someone lunch or you can buy someone coffee. They all laughed because they know that's true. Um, You can buy someone coffee, you can buy someone a meal. And that way you can sit down with them for an hour and an hour and a half, and you can even just ask them, what is your testimony, and what does it look like for me to be growing in my walk? It could be someone that's 10, 20, 30 years ahead of you in their walk with God, and that's a great opportunity because you might even find someone who has gone through similar circumstances that you have. That is one of the great things about being in a church this large is that if you are an engineer, if you're at Purdue or if you're just a young professional engineer and you want to find someone in the church who is an engineer that's been walking with God for 30 or 40 years, you can find that person because there are multiple, if not dozens, of men and women who are engineers for the glory of God and they use their positions at work to excel, to be excellent, and to represent God as an ambassador at whatever company they're at. There are also many school teachers. I know there are many school teachers in this room right here. Well, there's plenty of school teachers at Faith Church that have been doing that for 20 or 30 years that would love to sit down with you and that would love to talk with you about what does it look like to be a school teacher and grow in 2024? What does it look like to do that compassionately and lovingly? Or if you're a stay-at-home mom, there are many folks in this church that are in the same position that have gone before you that would love to talk with you, or there are many different jobs. You could work in a factory. Um, you could be an accountant, anything like that. There is someone that's probably in a similar um, field of work that you are in that would love to mentor you even just for one time, just for one time of getting lunch. I would encourage you to do that because this is the best season to think about what's it look like for me to grow in this coming year. Now, our next phrase in this passage is quite relevant for our day and age. It says that he swears to his own hurt and does not change. What does it mean to swear to your own hurt and, doesn't, and to not change? Well, that's talking about making commitments, and it's talking about keeping your word. Very relevant to our day and age. It says this person does not change even to the point where they're going to swear to their own hurt, which means the person of integrity will keep their word and their commitments even when it costs them something. When it costs me something and I have to be sacrificial. Sometimes we can see little commitments we've made to others as optional or not necessary to follow through on, but that is not how the Scriptures speak of our words, and in particular, the psalm is highlighting that. Because everything about the psalm has been about loving one's neighbor. So whether it is by not slandering them or speaking reproach against them, or in this case, it's loving one's neighbor by being a person that is trustworthy with their words and one that is dependable. 
We are all regularly making commitments. It could be commitments in the church to serve, commitments at work, commitments with our families, commitments with our friends. And it's important as Christians, as the people who are pursuing integrity, that we are very intentional and very careful with the commitments that we make with our mouths, and also that we keep the commitments that we do make. Now, the last of these eight points, the last two are about money. It's not very shocking that money has come up when we're talking about relationships. It says that he does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. Now today, mortgage rates are 7, 8, 9%. I don't know where they are today, but they're high. And I know many people are thinking, wow, will they ever go down? Well, yes, they probably will go down. But imagine if you were in the ancient world. 8% is nothing. Because in the ancient world, many people would charge others sometimes up to 50% on a loan. Now, what's the point of that? That is a very aggressive loan. And the whole point is that you are exacting as much money as you can get out of another person. The point of this phrase is that the man of integrity doesn't try to use people. He's not trying to get as much as he can or squeeze as much as he can out of his neighbor. He's using what God has given him to serve. And he's being reasonable with the relationships with others. And he's providing for them in any way that he can, not trying to make a profit. So these are the eight points that really describe the person of integrity. What it looks like to walk with righteousness and what it looks like to speak truth in one's heart. Now lastly, the psalm ends in a promise. It's a one-line promise. And it's that our stability in life is linked to our integrity. It says, he who does these things will never be shaken. What does this mean that you will never be shaken? Well, it sure doesn't mean that you'll never go through life with, with, with trials. Meaning, it's, It doesn't mean that you are going to escape the trials and suffering of this world. We see all kinds of people in the Bible that are people that have more integrity than we can even imagine. Yet, they go through some of the worst trials, some of the worst sufferings. Even David, the author of the psalm, we would say that he's a man of integrity. Not in every way by any means. He definitely showed himself to be a sinner, but he is still a man that is characterized by many of these attributes, yet he suffered a lot in his life. What this is referring to is the way that people go through suffering and trials. The person of integrity is not shaken in the sense that when the dust settles and all trials have come, that person is still standing on the rock. And that is God himself, because trials have a perfecting effect on this kind of person, not a destructive effect. James says it this way. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the person of the psalm is a person who can stand firm in calamity because they grow through those kinds of circumstances. They're a person that becomes more like Christ through trials. Well, this psalm is rather short, sweet, and to the point, isn't it? It's only five verses. The first verse is a question. The second verse is an answer, and it gives a description of that answer and then a promise at the end. And that's one of the most important questions a person can ask. Who can dwell with God? 
Now, when you look at this psalm in the context of the entire Old Testament, there is a sense in which it is leading to another question, or it is hinting at a greater question. Since the Garden of Eden, man has been waiting for redemption, and throughout the Old Testament, God's people are always waiting for the one who will save God's people. Psalm 15 is not a messianic psalm in the sense that it is pointing to Christ like many of them are directly. However, it does bring up the question, who really is the man of integrity? Because when you evaluate your life against this standard, you will fall short. Now, Christians will be characterized by these things. Anyone who is regenerate or anyone who has the Holy Spirit will be growing in these attributes. They will be growing and not slandering. They will be speaking truth. They'll be loving their neighbor and their relationships. Yet no one will be perfect. David was clearly not a man of integrity in the sense that he was not perfect. He was a man that was characterized by many of these things, but we see him sin greatly multiple times. When you get to the first page of the New Testament, though, New Testament, though it's very obvious that there is a man of integrity, and that is Jesus Christ. Even just let's walk through these different attributes or these different descriptions of a person of integrity. It says, he does not slander with his tongue. Well, Christ did not slander with his tongue. No, he spoke truth in every way. He even said that he is truth. Not only does he, it says, nor does he do evil to his neighbor. Christ loved his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, Instead of speaking words that tore down, Christ always spoke words that built up, that pointed people to him, that pointed people to God. It says, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Christ had fellowship with sinners, but he did not delight in the company of those who are opposed to God. He delighted in the company and the fellowship of those who were repentant, and those are the ones who fear the Lord. And it says, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. Well, how did Christ keep a commitment? He died for us, a sacrificial death. He took the wrath of God for us when he could have said no, in the sense of he made a commitment, but he kept it. He kept it to the point where he saved us. And lastly, it says, he does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. Christ did not come to take he did not come to make a profit off of other people, but he came to love and to give to those in need. You know, there are many ways in which we fall short of being a person of integrity, but Jesus Christ never falls short. And that gives us hope for 2024 because he is the one who we can live for. He's the one we can follow as an example. And when we do fall short, we can remember that we have grace that covers us that we have his righteousness because Jesus Christ is the one of integrity because he is the God of integrity. With these things in mind, let's go before our Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you and we're thankful that you are a God of integrity. We're thankful, we're thankful that you're a God that is holy and a God that cares for us. And we ask in this time, Lord, that you would forgive us for any ways that we sin, forgive us for any ways um, that we fall short of this standard. And we thank you that you have met the standard for us in Jesus Christ. That's because of his blood and his resurrection that we can be a person of integrity. We can continue to be growing in this area. We can also know that we have salvation, that we will one day be with you for eternity. We will dwell with God because of what Jesus Christ has done. 
And we do have this promise that even today, though we are not in your presence, we cannot be shaken in the sense that we have you as our rock, we have you as our foundation, and you are a sovereign and good God. We ask that you would help us to plan well for 2024, help us to be thinking of ways we can grow, ways that we can be changing, so that we are people that please you more, and we're people that represent you well to those around us. And we thank you for all the blessings you've given us in 2023. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.